Hello and welcome to Core Women. My name is Dr. Summer Watson and I'm the founder of Core Women and I'm also an empowerment strategist for women. So if you're listening to this podcast to delve more into empowerment strategies, well, you're here for the right reason. However, Core Women was also developed because it's a special place that provides a unique idea of home for the hearts and souls of women. It's a place for us to share our strength, energy, wisdom, and authenticity. It's a place for women to find support and strategic empowerment ideas that will help support their lives. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Jennifer Myers, who is an author, speaker, and federal prison coach. Additionally, she is here to talk about her own story of being incarcerated and how she has applied her experience and wisdom towards being the co-founder of the nonprofit Rise to Empower. Her experience as a TEDx speaker, her advocacy to end mass incarceration in the U.S., and so much more. Let's get right into your story, Jennifer, and welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you on the show. Well, you have so many things going on. There's so much to talk about here. So let's jump right into how you desire to end mass incarceration and find alternatives to imprisonment, how this all came about and, and your journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, you know, it was interesting because my story is just a little bit unusual. I mean, I had a great childhood. Um, I had a family that loved me. I grew up on a farm um, in Ohio. Um, you know, I was a top student, captain of my cheerleading squad. Um, I ended up going to college, and I was a dance major there. And then I moved to Chicago to begin dancing and choreographing. And after a few years, um, my sorority sister um, said that I needed to meet this guy. She knew I wanted to have meet a good guy, have a nice relationship. And she said he traveled a lot and, and had a lot of money. And so I ended up meeting him and he was a great guy. I mean, he was from Beverly Hills, very nice. But at some point after we'd already gotten involved in quickly into a relationship um, and, and he definitely lived a higher lifestyle, which I started getting involved in too and getting a little bit used to after about three months, he told me that he was involved in trafficking marijuana. And at that point, um, I guess they owed um, the Mexicans money. Um, they would, you know, tra- take basically transport marijuana from Tucson to Detroit. Um, and somebody was in trouble. So he was scared because they had three days to raise, you know, half a million dollars. And I think it was that, that he needed my love and my support that I didn't leave. Um, I could have left, but I didn't. And, and I just sort of wanted to take care of him, which was my problem. But what happened because of that is that I ended up getting involved at some point in driving the marijuana myself. And I got quickly pulled into the whole conspiracy, which ended up going on for me for about eight years until wow. somebody was arrested. Yeah. And, and so in 2002, I was arrested by the federal government took two and a half years for me to get sentenced, which was a, a horrible thing um, to experience. And, and then I was, I spent 17 months in federal prison, which completely changed my perspective of people in prison in prison. Wow. Okay. So just with what you've talked about just now, um, now, like I said, there's, there's, there's no judgment in this question, but because you've explained like, your foundation, coming from a good home, you know, being a cheerleader, excelling, going to college. So there's really no judgment here, but can you explain the reason for making the decision to, to transport drugs? What, where was the like, aha, this is what I'm going to do. And, and, and it being laden with 
so many potential consequences? It's, it's a great question. I wish I had all the answers for that. But what I can tell you is what drove me to do it. Um, okay. I, I remember um, his name was, well, I'll, let's call him Dane, because that's what I write about in my memoir, um, the, the man who was a kingpin and, and my boyfriend. And, you know, he, he had introduced me to this lifestyle. And at the time, you know, I was a dancer. I was a modern dancer. I worked a full-time job. I had a strong work ethic you know, all to dance at, you know, perform, rehearse at night, not get paid for that. Like I lived for my art. I never even thought that I wanted a lot of money. But the minute that we started traveling and, and, and I, I quit my job and he was taking care of me in a way, even in the first three months, my life drastically changed. I, I liked it. I'm like, oh, there's a freedom in this. But then all of a sudden, I felt sort of trapped. And I realized I'm not in love with him. I wasn't ready for this. But so what am I going to do? I've got two choices here. Leave him and go back to my old life or leave him and make my own money. Right. And literally it sort of got to this point where I didn't want to be tied to him for money. So I asked him one day, can I drive? I want to make my own money. So it was a sense of wanting my own freedom, which was false, of course. And then the second voice said, well, it's fine. It's just marijuana. You know, because I, again, in, in, I was never addicted to drugs. I never did anything beyond marijuana, which was rare if I did that. Um, but in, in college, when people smoked marijuana, it was just sure. sort of normal. And so I'm like, well, if, you know, if, if, if he can drive it and make this money, well, then I can drive it too. And the consequences went out the window. And I think that the third part is, is that I felt safe with him. He was really a good guy. I mean, he was polished. He felt safe. He was grounded. He was methodical. He was not manipulating. He, he really was like everybody's friend. So all of that, just put that little rosy glasses on. And I said, okay, I'll just drive. Wow. I mean, yeah. okay. So you, you've got a lot of guts, a lot of courage to do this. Were you scared? Well, you know, for it, it's really interesting. I'm not sure where that type of courage comes from. Um, I was scared, but I was, for some reason, really good at being calm in intense situations. I innocently, I guess I was, I was innocent. Like I didn't mm -hmm. realize I, I could be looking at 10 years in prison. I just mm -hmm. didn't think about it. I felt safe when I was with Dane and, and, you know, I, I'd grown up. I mean, I, I had courage. I mean, I'd grown up on a farm. I was a farm girl. I was also on a gymnastics team. I learned gymnastics at a young age. I competed. I was good at what I did. I knew how to strive for things. So it just became something else to be good at. Right. Wow. If and that makes sense. It yeah. does. I just got done talking about the whole concept of confidence and believing in oneself. And, and regardless of, and this is, this is what I always go back to, too. I used to work in neighborhoods with large populations of gang kids, right? And mm -hmm. they had a ton of skills, a ton of skills, leadership mm -hmm. skills you know, um, sales skills, you, you name it. And it was just misplaced skills. Like, so if you took that set of skills mm -hmm. and put it somewhere else, they might also do very well. So it, so, so what I it, just did the opposite. Yeah. You know, so it's like, you know, being confident in yourself, maybe it's, that's just innate, something innate that you had in you. And so you were like, Hey, I can do this too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, even if I can't, I mean, of course I had my insecurities, um, but, 
but I did feel confident that like I, it was that drive to always sort of be the best, which right. I can't say is, is always a good quality, <laughs> but that's what I was instilled in when I was younger. You know, it was, you know, when I, when I did well, which I did in everything that I did mostly, or at least I did good. Um, I would, I, you know, I would, I would be loved, you know, and I would, I, and that was sort of how it showed up in our family. We were very much high achievers. So I did, I transferred that energy into this. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So now can you explain what your experience was like in prison related to what it felt like having your rights taken away, seeing mm-hmm. mothers in prison, not being able to nurture or care for their children and how incarceration impacted your physical and mental health? Yeah. So first of all, I'll just say the minute that I was arrested and I was taken by, I was arrested by surprise for me um, and taken directly downtown to an MCI, a holding facility in San Diego. So I spent my first, you know, that was my first experience of getting arrested and I was in shock and um, I was in for two days. My friends had to advocate to get me out on bond and then I'm on house arrest. And, and again, it took two and a half years for me to get sentenced. In the meantime, during that time, I was also stalked and bribed at certain points um, it, it was a pretty awful experience. So I felt immediately my whole world changed. You know, I'd been searching for freedom. I, you know, in some ways was very innocent. And, and here I am with no back door and, and, and everything's restricted. So that in itself, with, the, with not knowing, starting at 10 years in prison and then finally going down to getting three years, a three-year sentence, um, was very uh, tiring and wearing on me. Um, emotionally, physically, I couldn't believe how it felt to be arrested. Um, it was horrifying. Um, I felt a ton of shame. Uh, I felt scared, um, just scared, like something was wrong, like everything felt wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally, when I was sentenced to prison, I felt a sense of relief. Um, but when I went in, of course, I was scared. And, you know, the same feeling of being arrested, it's the same feeling of being incarcerated, it's that same, it's all that same dense world. It's I don't, I wouldn't wish anybody to be incarcerated for even a day, I say, because it's just, there's something about it where immediately I felt personally forgotten. Um, you know, you're, 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 everybody that's there does, nobody wants to be there, first of all. So there's like a, a certain amount of negativity and volatility that's just around the whole compound. And I, it, you're separated from people that you love. And, and so I, I felt like we were locked away. I, I used to say like the lost girls, you know, like, like this is just one prison. And I felt a disconnect from the world. And that was just by being in for mm-hmm. 17 months. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's that part. And did you want me to answer the mothers? Because I was deeply yeah. concerned about the women that I saw locked up on lengthy drug sentences. I had no idea about the mandatory minimum guidelines until I was arrested. And it was, it was very interesting to find out that most of the women in there were mothers, mostly with two or three children. Right. Um, right. And so I would watch because mothers, you know, they're definitely natural nurturers and caretakers. All women are. So all of us wanted relationships. And I remember listening to the women on the, on the phones, the mothers, trying to mother their children and just feeling out of control. I think one of the most painful things is to be a parent who's incarcerated. Right. Right. Well, and I, and I bet it is, I bet it's really difficult because how, how do you parent when you're incarcerated? Where are your children? You know, are they with somebody that's safe? That's going to take care of them. That's going to nurture them. Are they with, you know, child protective services at this point? I mean, where are they, you know, so you've got all these questions running through your mind and 
and you don't know because as you said you almost feel forgotten you know yeah, yeah. and and i rem- yeah and i started to interrupt it. i remember one woman in particular marnie was her name and her kids were with her grandparents and she was at the verge of getting ready to lose them like lose custody of them and i just remember her sobbing on the phone and you know it's just it is it's it's impossible to feel like you have any sense of control right now being incarcerated and being amongst all these women how did that impact your your physical and mental health well let's see um i i kept my sanity um because you know i ended up like creating a program for myself i mean i had always meditated been on a, a pretty big spiritual search before i went into prison so i had little tools that i would use um, but I definitely, I worked a book called The Course in Miracles. I worked it every day. Um, I remember, you know, carrying, you know, these exercises in my pocket. Um, I mean, it really kept me sane. Um, it was hard. There wasn't a lot of privacy. And, you know, definitely I was around women that I'd never experienced before. There were women that, you know, of course, are not as respectful, that are rude, um, not as educated. And, and also at the same time, education or not, you know, it's not about education. It's about the person and how they've they've been raised. Right. Um, so it was it was challenging. I never really feared for my safety. I mean, a few times, or I, I almost got into a fight with somebody over a mattress, and that was scary for me. Um, I mean, I saw other women get into fights. I saw somebody um, who later, well, somebody committed suicide while I was inside. A woman died in her cube when I was inside. Mm-hmm. Somebody else escaped when I was inside somebody else beat another woman with a lock in her sock when I was inside, wow. you know, all of those things, you know, create a sense of survival in a way. Right. Um, but, but I was okay. I mean, I was in a camp, so it was the lowest security possible. Gotcha. So I didn't feel threatened. Um, and, you know, I, I remember I would get, actually a, a lot of us would get dizzy spells um, because we weren't getting enough protein. I mean, we barely got any protein at all, just chicken wow. um, and, and fake meat. So we would take vitamins. We'd buy bi- vitamins at the store. We're like, okay, let's take five vitamins. Um, I, a lot of women, um, you know, wouldn't get their period like for a year. Um, some of them would, you know, be bleeding for like six months and it wouldn't stop. Right. Um, our hair would fall out. I remember my hair started falling out because of wow. the water. So, really? you know, physically, yeah, a lot of staph infections. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, that, and that and that's part of course in you know when you have groups of people and in, in situations like that in hospitals and in incarcerate yeah. incarceration, you know, yeah, got to be careful for staph mm-hmm. infections. Now, mm-hmm. now you you've been featured on multiple TV programs such as the Today Show, Good Morning America, mm-hmm. NBC Nightly News, Entertainment Tonight about your experiences and your advocacy. So let's talk about your nonprofit and how you're moving the dial to end mass incarceration in this country and to be a conduit to finding alternatives to imprisonment. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and, and, you know, one thing I want to back up and just say one okay. more thing about how I got through my experience was literally I started doing writing and making art. So I definitely believe in the power of, of art and writing to help you get through any experience. Um, and, you know, those were parts of myself that I sort of stuffed away. So they sort of started bubbling up to take care of me when I was inside. And once they bubbled up, I knew when I got out, like I knew I had to do something 
I could not forget about the mothers inside prison. So I started by writing my book, my memoir, Cut Trafficking the Good Life. It took me two years to write it. And then I found a publisher. And then I um, ended up meeting another woman, Amy Wise, and we founded a nonprofit. We decided to write a workbook. Actually, it's a three-month program that they work four days a week or five days a week. And at first, it was for at-risk teen girls. So I started by doing preventative work. And we did our program with a group of teen moms in San Diego. Then we did it with a group of homeless teens. Um, And then more recently, we actually took the same work and turned it into a workbook for women. And we collaborated with San Diego U.S. Federal Probation last year or the last year and a half. And we did our program um, with women coming directly out of federal prison into halfway house. And we worked with a group of 15 women who were um, at a high risk of recidivism. Probably about 70% of them had been affected by human trafficking. Oh, wow. you know, most of them abused. Yeah, and, and so this program went over very well. Um, the women um, were, were actually, it was a part of their probation um, stipulation that they had to come to this program. Um, but then they ended up actually not wanting to leave the program. We did a year of aftercare with them. Okay. Um, not everybody graduated, but we had a pretty good success rate. And we're starting our next program there um, in January. And we're still definitely looking for funding for that. But I'm super excited to do that again. Oh, so that's, that's that part. Um, another part is, is that I've been going inside a men's state prison for the last almost three years now. Okay. Um, I helped go in. I helped run a program every Tuesday, which is a TEDx program. We produced the first TEDx inside of a prison in San Diego in 2017. Um, and that's very powerful. Um, we actually empower the men to make most of the choices and most of the decisions from the theme to auditioning speakers. We have five inside speakers, five speakers from the outside. Um, 70 plus men um, volunteering at the event, uh, 100 people come in from the outside to experience the event and 100 men attending. So it's quite powerful. Absolutely. That's phenomenal. You've done so much. Now, I'm going to back up just a little bit because I like what you said about your program, um, about the demographic that you're working with. Now, what did you find in your test program when you're talking about recidivism? Did you find that, you know, during that time, there were less reoffenders, less people going back into prison or being. So with the program, yeah, I think, you know, the thing is because our program is so intense and we work with such a sort of high risk population, it's, a, it's small groups. You know, so we had 15 women, you know, immediately huh. there were three that just didn't make it. Right. You know, one violated in the first month of the program, like they have to stick through it. So right. women that graduated have excelled. They have not gone back in. Um, they, you know, one woman is now um, works with helping other survivors of sex trafficking. She she was offered an internship to work with the homeless um, in San Diego. She's, you know, it, it, it definitely helped empower them. And I think this is what I want to say, no matter if it's, it's working with the men inside prison or doing this program with the women coming out of prison, which I would like it to be inside prison, is that it's with the intention, it creates some sense of value, of self-value. Right. And when people feel valued, that's when change happens. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I also agree that, you know, um, or feel like that it provides purpose. And when somebody knows what their purpose is and has a good idea of 
this is going to help guide them and, you know, strategize their personal journey. Well, I think that's really fulfilling too. And definitely, I think what you're doing is fantastic. Uh, your reflection about your experiences. Thank you for sharing those. Now, I have a, another question. What are some of your answers regarding reducing mass incarceration alternatives to prison? What would be some of your maybe solutions? Well, you know, I mean, this is always a tough question to answer. I mean, I think, like, if we're going to get realistic, it's, the system is broken um, in, in a way. And so I think that's the perpetual question. Where do you tackle it? And I think ultimately the biggest question is, is changing, changing sentencing policy. I really think that that is a, a key, um, you know, to, you know, I don't think there's anything healthy about putting people away on life sentences or the lengthy sentences that they do incarcerate people for. I think that needs to change. Now, as far as changing people, let's say inside prison, I mean, right now, I mean, I personally would love to see more programs that bring a sense of common humanity to people who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And again, bringing that sense of value, you know, over and over, I, I hear our guys say, or the women I worked with in, in the program, um, I, I felt human for a moment. That's a mm -hmm. huge thing to say. I felt human. Yeah. That's you know, and it's because that is stripped away inside prisons to me, that is a huge detriment. And, and I think decreasing recidivism would happen if we start empowering and bringing a sense of humanity back to people who are incarcerated while they, while they are inside. Reentry begins the minute their feet hit that compound. Right. And that is not how we're treating it. Wow. Um, number two, I also think if we would um, have training programs for wardens, you know, if we can start right. with one prison, I do think that um, an energy of rehabilitation in a new way can be contagious. So, you know, if, and it starts with administration. So if we have a warden who believes in these values and implements it is willing to take that on, then that's how you can start changing the energy of a whole prison, one yeah. prison, and then you can affect more. Fantastic. I think those are some great ideas and, you know, your ideas have value. And I absolutely think that changing the mindset, changing the, the perspective and the mm -hmm. values that wardens have, you know, and making that shift to what it could yeah. look like and what, you know, and being able to kind of map out what this is, this is what this would look like. Mm -hmm. And these are the results mm -hmm. of what would happen if we changed the system and your view of once they hit that prison or inside that prison, that's when we start mm -hmm. figuring out how to transition them back into community yeah. like right away. Exactly. And I, and I recognize, you know, across the board, of course, you know, there are men that commit very violent acts. Okay, well, right. yeah, I get it. You know, 25 years and then let's reevaluate. Not 55, not 65 years. I mean, I, anyways, I can't go into that. Um, no, but yes, no, I, I think that's yeah. a, another discussion for another time because, you yeah. know, then my, then yeah. my clinical um, background kind of kicks in and I'm like, okay, now we're talking about personality. We're, you know, we're talking about something completely different. So you're right. I mean, that's very, that's a very challenging subject. All of this is, but there's things that we can absolutely do to kind of yes. you know, change the paradigm of what's happening in relation to mass incarceration. And I think you're well on your way in changing you know, or moving that dial to making some change. So my, my last question for you is, if you were to leave the listeners with some words of wisdom today, what would they be? 
Well, you know, I think I'd like to say if we're talking about being more aware of, I would love for people to be more aware of who's really incarcerated. Like, who are we incarcerating for how long and why? And to to open up their minds to sort of try to release this judgment that we make on people who are incarcerated, because that's what we're talking about here. Um, we are all human. We are all born the same way. And honestly, I believe when people commit a violent act, it's because they didn't receive love and they, they weren't taught how to love. So we need to be responsible for that as a society in our communities. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. thank you. Thank you, Jennifer, for joining me on the Core Women podcast today. We had so much to talk about and we covered it in a very short time. I know this is just a soundbite yeah. in the beginning, but, you know, thank you again for being on the Core Women podcast with me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I, again, I really appreciate it. It was a, it was a pleasure. And if you'd like to know more about Jennifer Myers, please follow her on www.jennifermyers.co or on Instagram at jenmyers198. If you need a strategic empowerment coach, contact me. If you want to tell your story of empowerment or how you have reconstructed your life to drive change, send me a video or an email of your story providing permission to use it on my social media platforms. If you want to be featured on my podcast, reach out to me at info at corewomen.com. I want to hear from you and to get to know you. You are now part of the Core Women home. Let's get to know each other. Let's learn from one another. Please follow Core Women on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please let your women friends know about this podcast. If you write about Core Women in your social media posts, please hashtag Core Women. This is all about women. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about Core Women and please stay tuned for continued growth of the Core Women movement. Let's grow and drive change together. 